0: And he said to me, The remnant wearing the promise that the exile, is in great trouble and stain. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. <coughs> I truly like to words that and warm for days. They continued fasting, praying before the God of heaven. And he said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great. And also, awesome God, who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of His sins. And I now pray before you, day and night, for the people of Israel, to live, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faith unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost heart of heaven, from there I will gather them." And bring them to the place that I have chosen, to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have received by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight like to hear your name and give success your <coughs> people.
1: starting um, the book of Nehemiah. And as uh, Vanya just read to us, we see a man who is so broken over the sins of his people that it causes him to even confess his own personal sins. And he actually prays for something that I don't know about you, but for me has been, in my younger years, something i embraced. And as I got older, I started to avoid what I'm talking about is success. When I was younger, I couldn't, I couldn't wait until I did something with my life. Right? As I got older, I realized, and as I got more acquainted with the word of God and with the grace of God, I started realizing that me ambitiously going after my own successes wasn't really what God wanted me to do with my life. That's not why he created me, and that's not why he let me live the life that I was able to live. Now, you can, as a Christian, you can think about success, and you could take two very extreme views. The first one, many of you have heard of it, is called prosperity gospel. And what what the prosperity gospel teaches is that if you obey God enough, he will make you rich and he will make you healthy. He will take care of you and all everything that you want or ever dreamed of, you can realize that those dreams will come true. The other extreme is the poverty gospel where you, where you have to be poor in order to be holy. You have to be poor in order for you to have a right relationship with God. And the problem with these two approaches is not only the fact that the scripture never teaches any of these, but the fact that it bases its reason for blessing or for holiness or whatever goal you want to get to, it bases it not upon Christ and upon the character of God and, well, and his work, but it bases it upon something that God has created, mainly a Um, that's the problem now when you look at the Bible there are a lot of verses that talk about success actually in a positive way now many of you are acquainted with uh, teachings that say you know uh, that warn against the desire to become rich right and fall into that situation but how many of you guys are aware of verses in the Bible that actually talk about success in a, in a positive way in a good way Let me give you some examples. In 1 Samuel 18, it says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. 1 Samuel 18, continuing into verse 14, And David had success in all his undertakings. In Psalm 118, there's actually a prayer that says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. In Genesis 39, it says that the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. How do we understand these verses? Like years back, there was uh, something called the Prayer of Jabez, and that was really popular because people looked at that very short prayer and knew nothing about this man because the Bible really didn't give much information, any information about this man besides the fact that he prayed for success. Um, but, of course, you know, we in America who love success, you know, America embraces this kind of verse and just, you know, runs with it. Now, it's in the Bible. How do we get a more biblical and balanced understanding of success where we're not trying to chase after prosperity gospel, but at the same time, we're not trying to go to poverty gospel as well? See, both of those kind of gospels, they're not really gospel because they're not centered upon Jesus Christ and the cross. They're centered upon prosperity or the lack thereof. And so that kind of gospel is no gospel at all. So how do we come to a more biblical and balanced understanding of success where we can acknowledge that it's God who gives success and the fact that we shouldn't make success of God as well? Let me give you a list of eight lies that Christians believe about success that was on the top of the code. These are the eight lies. I'm not going to explain it. You guys can look it up. Just Google eight lies Christians believe about success and you'll find it. Um, Bigger is better. God's blessing is tangible. God helps those who help themselves. You are what you make of yourself. Suffering is a sign of failure. If, feel, if it feels good, do it. Believe in yourself and anything is possible. And the last one, only trust what you can see. You see, these are lies that Christians believe. And as far as what, what, what is meant by these statements, well, if you read the article, it explains it to you. But one of the key things that people believe about success is that God will bless you with tangible things. And that if you suffer, it's because you made some bad choices. You weren't successful in your decision-making. You weren't wise. You weren't smart enough. Success in the Bible, to begin to have a more balanced understanding of it, it's not based upon the tangible. It's not based upon making the right choices, right? Success, if you look in Scripture, it's more about, it's less about us and what we can do or didn't do, and it is more about God and what he did. It's more about God's choice and God's will for you in terms of success. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, these
0: verses
1: give us a good introduction to how we should think about success. Emphasis of those verses is not about are you shamed or are you strong. It's not about are you despised or are you loved. The emphasis in this passage is not whether you are of noble birth and you have great pedigree or not. The emphasis is that God has chosen certain people to be in a certain place in life. And so the emphasis of these verses is less upon what your life looks like physically, and in the eyes of other people around you, and it is more about what God's will is. It's about his choice. And that provides a foundation for understanding a biblical view of success. Now, here in this passage that we just just read for us, we have Nehemiah, and he's going to undertake the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem because it's been destroyed. And he's very discouraged by it because the people are discouraged. And at the end of his prayer to God, he asked for success. So we can already know just from this passage, just by reading it, we already know that success can be a good thing. It can be a good thing. Now, I want to show you, I want to walk through you, through, I want to walk with you through this passage, but I want to focus on two ideas that come out. Number one, why people long for success. There are a lot of reasons, but from this passage, the main reason why Nehemiah longs for success is because of the experience of discouragement. Isn't that true, even for our lives? Don't we long for success because we have experienced in the past some sort of discouraging situation or circumstance about our lives, and we want to change that. You know, I always constantly hear, and I agree with this, that America is a very special place because it's a place where your dreams could actually come true if you work hard enough. It's not the case in every country. But in America, that's one of the blessings we have, is that you can work hard and you can do something with your life, right? But the problem with that statement and that worldview It's it's too simplistic because it leaves God out of the picture, but we won't get into that The reason why Nehemiah asked for success is because he was human, just like we're human, and he was discouraged, and his people were discouraged. I want to show you what it feels like. I want to try to picture for you, illustrate for you, what Nehemiah was feeling. Because as, as we were reading through this passage, you see a lot of emotion. You see a lot of inner turmoil and turnings of the heart and struggles that Nehemiah is going through. And I want to show you exactly what he was feeling. Or at least I'm going to try. What discouragement was Nehemiah experiencing at this time? Well, let's just look at what he says. He says he talks about a remnant, right? The remnants there in the province, this is the report he's hearing, right? There's a remnant. What's a remnant? A remnant is a remaining group of people. Now, they were, they were exiled. right? They were living in a foreign country, and they, they're coming back to Jerusalem for the first time. You know what this is like? This is like the life of a refugee. We have a community here in the Atlanta area for refugees. I don't know if Probably, probably many of you do. Know. What is it like to be a refugee? I mean, for us, it's probably hard to imagine. But a little bit more removed, all of us here, I believe, can relate to the life of being an immigrant. Right? It's very similar. He was discouraged because he was lonely. It's lonely being a refugee. It's lonely being a remnant because you're the only one left, it seems like. Those of you who grew up in neighborhoods where you, you didn't have people like you, there's loneliness. There. So he was nas- he, there was a national loneliness for Nehemiah, but there was also a spiritual loneliness. You ever feel like you wanted more? You wanted to grow? You want more of God? You want more of his word? But... Everybody around you just didn't want that. You ever feel that way? It's called being spiritually alone. That's called being a remnant, right? Where you want to talk about the things of God. You want to have a conversation about faith and even predestination and hell and heaven and salvation and assurance. But you just have no one to talk to and you feel all alone. That's what it was for Nehemiah. That's what it was for his for his people. Elijah. Something. In Romans 11, it talks about Elijah, and it says, "God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not do you not know that the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and uh, and alone, am, and I alone am left, and they seek my life." There's a lot of loneliness there for life. He actually wanted to die. This is a prophet of God, right? He wanted to die. He had suicidal thoughts. Does that make sense? Right? He was lonely because he felt he was the only one left. Right? No one, he couldn't connect with anyone. There's a loneliness to being a remnant. Not only that, there's an alienation to being an exile. What does it mean to be an exile? You lost your land. You lost your lifestyle. You lost the ability to support your family, right? Because you could have been a doctor or, or an engineer or a teacher or someone who, or a successful businessman before you got displaced from your country. But after you became a refugee, guess what? There's no occupation for you there, right? You have to do something else. You lose the ability to support your family when you become a refugee. You lose your land. You have no home. You lose your lifestyle. You have to change your entire life on a dime. Let me give you Psalm 137. Pretty emotional passage. Psalm 137, 1-4. It talks about people being in exile, what it feels but it's surprisingly modern because I actually, if I went through this, I think many of you did. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Now you have to remember, these are, this is a Jewish mind. This is a Jewish voice living in Babylon. Okay? By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered. That. On the willows, there we hung up our lives, <clears throat> For there our captors required, a, required of us song, and our tormentors, myrrh, saying, Sing us one of the songs of life. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What this is, right? This is you being surrounded by people who are not like you, and because they're just so fascinated by you being so different from them. They want you to entertain them with one of the things that causes your loss. That's what that is. Right? It's very alien. You feel so much like an other. You never feel like one of the people. You never feel like that land is your home because Not only are you going through feelings of displacement, but the people around you do not give you the opportunity to become one of them. There's alienation of exile. There's distress of inner and outer struggle. Nehemiah goes through these things. Inner struggle, we're talking about emotional turmoil. It's debilitating. Nehemiah going through discouragement, it's confusing. And there are incessant thoughts, meaning he's thinking about those discouraging thoughts over and over again. He's reclaiming them in his mind. Not only that, on the outside, if the inner turmoil is not enough, on the outside, there are people who are shaming him and ridiculing him. You know, if it's not people talking about you, then you have the confrontational ones who will talk at you. And if it's not any of them, Right? There's no one most people will never talk with. There are inner and outer struggles. Not only that, the walls are down. The walls are destroyed. And back then, for an ancient city, having city walls that are standing strong and a gate that works was everything. It was national security. There was real possibility of being invaded and ravaged every single day that there was no wall, no gate. You could be invaded by anyone. And if you weren't living closer to the center part of the city, you were even more at risk. You know, if you think about it, this is the life that Jesus Christ chose to have on us. This is what he voluntarily chose to have. He chose discouragement. He chose to live the life that a refugee would live when he came to earth. The loneliness, the alienation, the distress, inner and outer distress, and the vulnerability he had. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, At the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You know, aren't there times we we try to help people, but we try to help people on our own time? You see, when it says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that's Christ helping us, not when his time is right and when it fits his schedule, but when we need it. And if you study the historical Uh, appropriateness of the timing of Christ's crucifixion to me, you begin to see God's wisdom and his promise. And Romans 5 continues to say, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. This is something that he didn't deserve. He chose to do this. He chose to take on this discouragement, the loneliness, the alienation, the distress, the vulnerability. And you see, Nehemiah, when he was discouraged and you study his prayer, he didn't turn to, dis- to distracting entertainment. He didn't turn to distracting to people where he could find comfort from that, he didn't turn to circumstances. He turned to the Lord in prayer. He turned to the covenant relationship he had with God. That's what he turned to when he was discouraged. Nehemiah, Nehemiah's response is essentially what Christians should do in remembering Christ as they walked through the Christian life. It was a God-directed sorrow. He affirmed God's character instead of questioning it. If you look in verse 5, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. If Nehemiah's relationship with the Lord affirmed God's character, he didn't question it in times of he didn't say, God, if you're such a great and awesome God, why do you, why do you abandon me? Why are, why, where is your steadfast love? And what is, what is the point in keeping your commandments? He didn't question it. He affirmed it. And it was because of his relationship with the Lord in times of dispersion. He confessed not only the corporate sin of Israel, but his own personal sin as well. He not only identifies with the sin of Israel, just as Ezra did, but he also says, even I and my family, we have sinned. See, when he saw the weak, the, the sinful practices of God's people, he didn't just remain there and just judge in his mind, it caused him to reflect on his own sins, And not only to internally reflect on it, but to verbally confess it before God. And he asked God to hear him. And he asked God to grant him success. Now, this is very important when it comes to success. All of this is very important. Discouragement will cause us to desire success, and to chase factors Because we want to get away from the loneliness, but Christ
0: runs to the low.
1: We want to get away from the alienation and surround ourselves with successful people who will make us feel like the law. Christ left the success and perfection of heaven and ran to being alienated. In discouragement, we desire to escape distress both inner distress and the outer distress that people would put on. But Christ embraced. He left the glories of heaven and the peace of heaven and embraced the distress of a suffering servant. Leaving the protection and perfection and the greatness of heaven, where no one can challenge the security of heaven, he left it all, in order to make himself vulnerable to attack, he let down his guard on purpose, not because he wasn't smart enough and he didn't think it through, but basically because he thought it through. He let it down, intentionally. While we would run from being vulnerable. That is the life of Christ. And in our discouragement, And in our desire to get out of that discouraging state to a state of success, we have to remember the mind and the life of Christ. Nehemiah, the reason why he asked for success was in order to serve. That's why. It was others' focus. First God, the the first other is God. He asked for success to serve God and rebuilding God's temple. And he asked for success to serve the people. And you see, success is an issue, not about what are the right tasks that you need to do, but about what the right heart is. Alistair McGrath, a theologian, he said this. The idea of a calling or a vocation is first and foremost about being called by God. Right? Calling and vocation that has to do with the success of what you do in life. It's first and foremost about being called by God, placing the who is calling you as the emphasis, highlight, to serve him within his world. Work was thus seen as an activity by which Christians could deepen their faith. You see, the goal was a deep relationship with God, and success was the means. But the prosperity gospel flips it. The prosperity gospel makes success the goal, and relationship with God the means. The use of God. To do anything for God and to do it well was the fundamental hallmark of authentic Christian faith. You see, success was defined very differently. It was about being faithful to God. That's how success was understood. And the reason why you would bring quality work in order to achieve that success was not in order so that that success would bring you other things that you could possess and identify with and find value in, but so that you could serve That was the reason. And according to Alistair McGrath, that was the hallmark of authentic Christian faith. You see, when you're faced with discouragement, part of the discouragement you feel in this life is a reminder that you were made for more than an existence broken by sin. You see, when you're faced with discouragement, it's not purely just, how do I get myself out of here? When you are experiencing discouragement, you have to realize that there is a sovereign God who put that in your life for a reason. He didn't make a mistake. And, it wasn't, and it's definitely not about you making a mistake or being dealt the wrong hand. When you have discouragement in your life, God is graciously reminding you that you were made for so much more. You were made for a life without sin. And that's why you're discouraged, because you are a creation made for a perfect world, a sinless world, and you're living in a sin-broken world. That's why you're discouraged. And God, in his grace, is turning your attention and your heart back to him. Discouragement is not something that comes because someone else screwed with their life. Sorry for being crude. I want to be real. Discouragement is not purely because you made some bad moves or you were dealt with a bad hand. The problem with all of those conclusions is that all of those conclusions focus on ourselves or people and eliminate God. It has no place in the mind and heart of a Christian. The discouragement you experience Secondly, you should remember that Christ voluntarily experienced it. Not only did he voluntarily you see, it wouldn't, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't matter if Christ voluntarily experienced all the suffering and discouragement that we feel, if he had no power to do anything about it. He has power to do something about it. And one day he's going to make it right. All the injustices, all the discouragement Christ will make right someday. He has the power to do it. And that's why we need to, that's why our minds need to go back to Christ in moments of discouragement. Because essentially, when you deny in your inner person to go back to Christ in your moments of discouragement, you are saying with your action, with your state, Christ is powerless to do anything for us. That's what that is. Okay? That's what that is. Every time you refuse to go back to Christ in surrender and dependence upon him in your discouraging times, it is an affirmation whether you are aware of it or not, it is an affirmation that Christ can do nothing for you. Success is something we naturally long for as human beings, okay? There's no fault in that. Sigmund Freud and C.S. Lewis will say the same thing when it comes to that. It's not my words. It's Randy Alcorn. He says that C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud, with two very different worldviews, they agree that human beings have a natural desire for happiness. But the fundamental difference lies in how we understand success and happiness. It is never the goal. I want to leave you with that. Success is never the goal, but it's a circumstance that God gives. Okay, very important. It's a circumstance that God gives for His glory and the building up of His people. It is not something you approve for yourself. And number two, True success is about being perfectly aligned with the will and person of God. And before you think, whoa, that's really legalistic, true success is about being perfectly aligned with the will and person of God. Only possible in Christ and by Christ. And that's why, if you want true success, you have to go back to Christ because He's the only one. praying for success is not wrong we should pray for success but we have to understand what true success is we have to realize we have to identify what values in our lives are mixing with the gospel values and the biblical teaching about success and we have to kill that sinful self and that sinful heart that is constantly rearing its ugly head to turn our attention away from God and focus upon ourselves. We have to put that to death
0: every day by the grace of God. I'm
1: going to leave you with this. When I was in uh, college, I had a friend who was in high school, and he asked me because he was hearing a lot from his teachers, from his his school teachers, that, you know, you should chase after God, and you shouldn't be so focused on your academics. Yeah, weird, right? Um, And so we sat in the car. I was dropping him off home after a day of, you know, worship and Bible study and fellowship. And then right before he opened, so I was double parked, And right before he opened the door to leave, he asked me, um, do you think that I'm sinning if I'm trying to do, to be successful in school? Do you think I'm sinning? Because I feel like I'm not being from what I'm hearing. And uh, honestly, I don't fully remember the exact words that I told him, but essentially the point was if you make your grades and your academic career the goal and you use God as a tool to get those goals, then, yes, you
0: But if God
1: and his glory and serving him is your goal, and you use your grades and your academic success to get to that goal, then you're nothing. You're actually being the best Christian that God, by his
0: grace, has made you. Um, it's very difficult because it's very elusive to identify
1: when our hearts are actually putting success as an idol as God. Or when we are killing that temptation to idolize success and we are enthroning God in his proper place in our mind. Know, very difficult. But if you want a practical a practical way to identify that in a situation of success or some means of achieving success, just think about, to stop and think if that opportunity or that tool or that means was taken from Would you be angry? Would you be discouraged? And I've realized that in my moments of discouragement, that was God's loving and gracious way of revealing the idols of my heart and ministering to me in his love and in his tenderness. To say,
0: hey, see me more clearly, love me more deeply, and listen more faithfully.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together and allowing us